What does it mean to belong to First Baptist Church Pelham? I'm interested in how the unchurched would answer that question. What would a non-Christian say that a Christian ought to be about? In the best case scenario, I think at the very least, that person would have to admit that a Christian is one who loves Jesus, reads the Bible, goes to church, and does some good. Today we start a four-part sermon series entitled Commitment, whereby we are committing ourselves to loving Jesus, reading the Bible, going to church, and doing some good ministry. When I stop and think about the meaning of membership, there is one word that seems to spring to my mind, and it's the word commitment. I realize the word is a bit antiquated, maybe even a little stale, stuffy. Yet I think that there is a dynamic aspect of the word commitment. The word actually means an ongoing pledge or obligation. The dynamic aspect of the word commitment can be seen when you and I begin to consider to what or to whom our commitment clings. For you and I are Jesus people. Fundamentally, we are committed to Christ. We think about Jesus, we talk about Jesus, we pray to Jesus, we sing about Jesus, we worship Jesus, we study Jesus, we love Jesus. If you don't like Jesus, you're not going to like this place because this is a Jesus house. This is a place where we make much of our Lord. And so when I stop and think about it, fundamentally, what it means to be a Christ follower is that you and I make a whole lot to do about Jesus. We are committed to Christ. When you consider this, you have to realize that as we look around this room, as we look around the membership of First Baptist Pelham, we have to conclude there's a great deal of diversity. I mean, we have differing ages and genders and background and interest and goals and dreams. We have different jobs, different political persuasions. We even pull for different college football teams on Saturdays. But the one thing that unites us more than anything else is our common bond in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the greatest. It is the strongest. It is the most eternal bond that you and I can share. So we are united by Christ. Fundamentally, church membership has to mean that you and I are committed to the person and cause of Christ. So when I think about some of the greatest Christological passages in all the Bible, Philippians chapter 2 comes to mind. And so this morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As today we consider what it is to be committed to this one named Christ. Philippians chapter 2, I'll begin at verse 1, I'll read through verse 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded 
having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you, and this day I ask for you to help me to preach. Help me to preach with clarity and help me to preach with conviction. May your word go forth and may your church be edified. May the lost be found, may the saved fall more madly in love with you. We pray this and ask this in the name of the one and only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people declared, amen. You may be seated. The Philippian church was founded on Paul's second missionary journey. It was a good church. She did a lot of great things. Uh, She was very generous with her resources. She advanced the cause of Christ in her backyard. But even though the church at Philippi was a good church, that church had some struggle and some strife. There were external problems. There were internal problems. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaks about the external strife. He says, beware of those dogs, those evil men, those mutilators of the flesh. Can I just tell you, those are not terms of endearment. Jesus is telling the church, watch out for phony prophets. They come and peddle the gospel that's really no gospel at all. For they say that in order for you to be a bona fide believer in the Lord, you must first be circumcised, go through Judaism, and after becoming a Jew, then you can become a Christian. And Paul says, that's not the gospel that I preached. So beware of those dogs, those evil men. There was strife on the outside. There was also internal strife in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche, agree with each other in the name of the Lord. I don't know what the problem was between these two sisters in Christ, but these two ladies were at each other's throats. In fact, Paul only has to mention their name for everybody to go, "Uh uh-huh, I know what you're talking about. All he has to say is, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche, agree with each other in the name of the Lord. He doesn't take sides. He doesn't say one's right and the other's wrong. He just says, for the sake of the gospel, for the cause of Christ in Philippi, can you please agree with each other in Christ? There was internal strife, internal struggles. People were warring against other people, even within the faith family. At the beginning of our passage, Paul says, Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Consider others better than yourself. Now, why would the founding pastor have to write that? Well, because the church was made up of selfish people who were vain and conceited and they thought of themselves before they thought of somebody else. I don't know about you, but this sounds like a pretty good description of just about any church you would find in America or throughout the globe today. 
Because any church is made up of flawed people. And when you get a collection of flawed people, you're going to have internal strife and you're going to have external strife uh, from the outside society. So how in the world can the church survive? How can Christ triumph over culture internally and externally? And the Apostle Paul says the only way is for us to elevate the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we lift high the name of Jesus... Our gaze and our focus gets off of one another and onto the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so Paul says, listen, if you're going to be a member of this church, if you're going to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, then you must love Jesus more than anything else. Lift high the name of Jesus. Make much of Jesus in your mind, in your heart, in your actions, in your priorities. You make much of the Lord. So then he follows with what some believe is an inserted hymn, a song of the church. I I think that really what Paul does is by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes these words. I mean, I don't really think it's an inserted song. I think that it's actually words that come from the Holy Spirit through the inspired pen of the Apostle Paul onto the parchment And the truth of the words jump off the page. Remember what Paul is doing. He is saying, listen, the way you unite the body of Christ is that you focus them on Christ. For the people of God must be focused on the God of the people. That when the people of God are focused on the God of the people, then God's people know who is really in charge. It's the Lord Jesus himself. So he says, let your mindset, let your attitude be like that of Christ Jesus. What follows are about six verses where Paul talks about the humiliation of Christ, verses 6, 7, and 8, and then the exaltation of Christ, verses 9, 10, and 11. This passage breaks out beautifully into who Jesus is, how he came, why he came, and how God the Father responded to the work of Jesus after the cross. So it is the humiliation of Jesus, and then it's the exaltation of Jesus. It is the descent of Jesus into the ascent of Jesus. It's a beautiful passage that shows us who we focus upon. We focus on Jesus. Why? Because we're Jesus people. So Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Any rendering of Jesus that reveals him as something less than God is not the Jesus of the Bible. Consistent all throughout the Holy Scripture, Jesus is always portrayed as God. Paul says this quite clearly, that Jesus being in the very nature God. That Greek word for nature is morphe. Some of your translations may even say the word form. We get the word metamorphosis. The word morphe in Greek literally means the unaltered essence of a person. The morphe. That Jesus' morphe is that he is God. The unaltered essence, the unchanged essence of Jesus is that he is God, who being in the very nature, God. Because Jesus is God, he can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Because I and the Father are one. What's he saying? We're of one essence. We are of one unaltered essence. We are the same morphe. Now, certainly, the bodily form of Jesus changed, right? I mean, he came to earth as a baby. That baby grew uh, to be a toddler. That, that toddler became a young boy. The young boy became a teenager. A teenager probably with some pimples. And then that teenager uh, became a man and lived some 33 years on planet earth. So the outward form of Jesus changed, but the morphe of Jesus never changed. It's the unaltered essence of Jesus. For who is Jesus? He is God. Anything that renders Jesus as less than God is not the Jesus of the Bible. Any world religion, any framework, any mentality that somehow demotes Jesus from the high status of being God himself, that person, that imagery, uh, that ideology is not biblical. Because consistently throughout the Bible, Jesus is portrayed as having the morphe of God, the unaltered essence of God. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus is equal to God, not only in his essence, but also in his status. He is on par with God. Why? Because he is God. Once again, any ideology that somehow reveals Jesus as less than God is not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus is on par with God in form and status. And yet, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That word grasped means exploited. It means taken advantage of. Jesus never abused his rights, his prerogatives, his position as being equal to God in essence and status. Think for me just for a moment. Had Jesus taken advantage of this, he could have been the richest person on the planet, right? He could have charged admission for the things he did. He could have said, hey, you want to come see a blind man get healed? You come and pay $19.95 and you can come right in and see it. I mean, the place would be packed all the time. You want to see a dead man get up again? Now that's $39.99 and you can come in and see that and it'll pack the place there. I mean, if Jesus had exploited his ability, he could have been the richest person on the planet, right? He could have lived in the biggest house. He could have driven the fanciest chariot. He could have been the richest of rich had he exploited, taken advantage, or grasped his equality with God. That word that's translated grasp or exploited literally conjures the imagery of a robber clinging to his loot. I mean, if you're going to get the loot out of a robber's hand, it's going to be out of his cold, dead hand because he's going to cling to it. And Jesus did not cling to his equality with God as if to show it off. He didn't cling to it as if to say, no, this is mine and I'm not gonna give it up. Jesus did not cling to his identity or his equality in form or status. So Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Some of your translations say he emptied himself. And the question is, emptied himself of what? What did Jesus empty himself of? The answer cannot be his divinity. 
We cannot say that he emptied himself of his divinity. Had he done that, he would just be a mere mortal man and no mere mortal man can die for other mortal men in order to bring about forgiveness of sins. Jesus has always been the God-man, fully God and fully man. So when he emptied himself, he cannot be emptying himself of his divinity. So what's he emptying himself of? What is he doing to make himself nothing? I want to submit to you this morning that he's emptied, he emptied himself of some of his rights, some of his privileges, some of his prerogatives. Let me try to explain there were times that Jesus self-limited himself. He self-limited his omniscience. The word omniscience means that he knows everything. And there were times when Jesus demonstrated his omniscience. For he said to Simon the Pharisee, why do you think that thought in your mind? Only one who's omniscient can actually read the mind of someone else. But then elsewhere, Jesus limited his omniscience when he said, no one knows the dates or time or hour when the Son of Man will return. Only the Father in heaven knows that. He self-limited his omniscience. There were also times when he self-limited his omnipotence. The omnipotence means the all-power of God. And certainly Jesus being God, he is omnipotent, he is all-powerful, but there were times when he limited his power. Where do you see this? You see this on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. For don't you know that Jesus could have gotten himself down off that cross? He has the power to do that. I know the hymn writer says he could have called 10,000 angels. Certainly could have called 10,000 angels. It didn't require 10,000 angels to get Jesus off the cross. He could have done it himself if he wanted to. Don't ever think for one moment that it was the rusty nails driven through his wrist and his feet that somehow kept him on the cross. Oh no, he's not going to be hung by some rusty nails. The reason he's there and the reason he stays there is not because of rusty nails, but because of righteous love that he has for you and for me. There were times that Jesus self-limited his omnipotence. But there were other times when the omnipotence of God couldn't help but shine through. You remember when Jesus is there at his best friend Lazarus' tomb? And he stands there and he peers into death. He orders for the stone to be rolled away. And God in the flesh says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man can't help but to hop out of the grave. He can't help it. Why? Because the omnipotent God called his name. And he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus has to come out because Jesus is God. Therefore, he is omnipotent. But sometimes he veiled the omnipotence. He, he emptied himself. He became nothing. And literally, you can understand that he limited his omnipresence. Because Jesus is God, all of Jesus is everywhere. We've said before that the omnipresence of God is not just because God is obese and fat and he is everywhere in the world. No, it means that all of God is everywhere. All of God is here, all of God is there, all of God is in America, all of God is in China, all of God is everywhere. The same could be stated of Jesus, that Jesus in his divine nature, that all of him is everywhere. But for three decades in the first century, this one who created time and space subjected himself to time and space. And Jesus came to walk a piece of land no bigger than New Jersey. And he had his ministry 
right there in that geographical spot called Israel. He could have gone other places, but he didn't. He could have blinked his eye and been over here, but he wasn't. Because when Jesus lived, he lived in Israel for some 33 years, had his ministry there. Oh yes, there were times he crossed the border, but not often. And the majority of his time was spent in that little bitty sliver of land on the Mediterranean Sea. Because Jesus emptied himself. Jesus became nothing. He, he self-limited his omniscience, his omnipotence, even his omnipresence. <laughs> Stop and think about that. The one who spoke the world into existence had to learn how to talk. The, the one who walked with Adam in the cool of the day had to relearn how to walk. The one who danced with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace actually had to learn how to crawl. The ancient of days became the infant of days. The one who knows everything had to learn some things. Dr. Luke tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills was born in abject poverty. When you stop and consider it, Jesus had to borrow everything in this life. He borrowed a barn to be born. He borrowed a boat and turned it into an aquatic pulpit. He, he borrowed a donkey and rode into Jerusalem for the very last time of his life. He had to borrow an upper room so he and his friends could share the Passover meal. He had to borrow a tomb in order to die. He had to borrow everything. This is the crown jewel of heaven who was born in abject poverty and raised in obscurity. He emptied himself. Now, why does the Apostle Paul tell us this? He's giving us the quintessential example of how we ought to live our life. Because remember, He's telling a church that has internal strife and external strife. Uh, we've got uh, women, Euodia and Syntyche that are at each other's throat. We have people that are conceited and vain and think of their own interests instead of the interests of others. And so he says, whoa, whoa, just look at the life of Jesus. This is a good word for us today. Because we live in a society of entitlement, don't we? We're entitled to some things. We're entitled to a grudge. We're entitled to resentment. We're, we're, we're entitled to some rights as husband or wife or parents or children. We're entitled to rights as employers and employees. We're entitled to rights inside the church and outside the church. We're entitled to gossip. We're entitled to slander, or so we think. We're entitled to speak our mind. And yet Paul says every time you think you have an entitlement personality, just think of Jesus Consider him. He was in the very nature God. Yet he didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited. But he made himself nothing. Think about this. The moment you think that you're somebody, the moment you think that you're high and mighty, the moment you think that you've arrived, let this thought sink into our minds. That Jesus had to become nothing in order to get to the apex of humanity. Jesus had to become nothing in order to be something here in this world. 
He had to empty himself. He had to become nothing. And in his nothingness, he became somethingness so that we who are somethingness, even though we're nothingness, could be declared innocent in God's sight. Oh my goodness, Jesus had to become nothing in order to be something like me. Jesus had to become nothing to be something like you. (laughs) And even at that, Jesus is still higher than us. Even in his state of nothingness, he is elevated higher than our somethingness. Some of you know that our children uh, go to Briarwood Christian School. They may have had this motto or theme for several years. I'm just now picking up on it. That's not odd. I'm a little slow. I went back to school for uh, my junior high daughter, my elementary age son, And I saw several places this statement, I am third. I am third. I am third. Teachers are trying to tell their students, I am third. Students trying to tell other students, I am third. What they're trying to teach is that God is first, others are second, and you are third. You do realize that's countercultural. We live in a society that says, I am first. If you want anything done, do it yourself. If you don't look out for yourself, no one else will. You're first in line of everything. You're first, you're greatest, you're best. We live in a society, much like the first century, that says, I am first. Yet the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, what some teachers are telling my children and their students, no, you're not first, you are third. Consider Christ when you think you're somebody. Consider Christ when you want to get even. Consider Christ when you want to slander a brother or sister in the Lord. Consider Christ when you want to hold a grudge. Consider him. He was in the very nature of God, yet he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. What did that nothingness look like? He took the nature of a servant. He was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself became obedient to death, even death on a cross. For the second time in this passage, we find the word nature. You'll remember, that's the word morphe. Jesus has two unaltered natures. He has two identities. Jesus is the unaltered essence of God, and Jesus is the unaltered essence of humanity. In the very nature, he was a servant. In the very nature, in the very morphe, in the very form, he was a servant. He was a human and found in appearance as a man. Not only did he appear as a man, he was a man. And how manly was Jesus? How human was Christ? I'll tell you how human he was. When Jesus was hungry, his stomach growled. When Jesus swung the hammer in daddy's carpenter shop and missed the nail and hit his fingernail, it hurt. And he probably let out a screech. When Jesus walked all day, his leg muscles were sore. When Jesus preached all day, his voice was tired. When Jesus at the end of the day was fatigued, he slept. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as you are, just as I am, yet he was without sin. How 
how human was Jesus? He was as human as you are, as human in every way. He had the morphe of a man. He had the unaltered essence of a man. You say, this doesn't make any sense. How can he have two natures? How can he have two morphes? How can he be fully God and fully man? And that the best answer I can give you is, I don't know, but the Bible says so. I don't know how it's possible. I just know that it is possible because this is what God says. Now, ultimately, Jesus has to be God-man. He has to be God-man. In order for him to do what he came to do, he has to be God-man. He has to be fully human in order to be your suitable substitute. He has to be fully God in order to pay the penalty of your sin and mine. He has to be the God-man. If he's just God, he's not a human as a suitable substitute. If he's just a human suitable substitute, then he's not God and his pockets aren't very deep. He doesn't have the capacity to pay the penalty for us. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul lays this out beautifully. He says, that because God is just, penalty has to be paid. God cannot allow sin just to be swept on the carpet. Because God is just, penalty has to be paid. Because he is merciful, he made the penalty for us. Introdu- introduce Jesus the Christ, the God-man. It can only be the God-man. So Jesus came in the very nature God, equality with God, not something to be exploited, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He self-limited himself. He took on the very nature and morphe of a human servant. He came to earth as a man. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is how we know that God wrote the Bible. If it was just a human, we would have messed it up right here. We would not say that the God of the cosmos had to die a despicable, disgraceful death on a cross. This is the problem that the Jewish people had and still have with Jesus. Because in Deuteronomy it says, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And Jesus died a despicable death. But he died as our substitute. You and I cannot understand the cross of Calvary without understanding substitutionary atonement. Atonement meaning the covering of our sins. Substitute meaning that Jesus took our place. So that Jesus took our place and by his death, he covers a multitude of our sins. Because Jesus came to die. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. The book of the Bible is not about the plan of salvation. It's about the man of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came for one purpose. He came to seek and to save the lost. He died on the cross. He hung to make us holy. He was bruised so that we might be blessed. He was ridiculed so we might be declared righteous. And Jesus said, if I lay down my life, I have the power to pick it back up again. No one takes my life from me. I willingly, freely lay it down. And when I 
lay down, I can pick up. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Because Jesus says, if I put it down, I can raise it back up again. And that's why Paul says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When you get to verse 9, it's the exaltation of Jesus. Because God the Father validates the death of Jesus by raising him from the dead. The gruesome crucifixion is validated by the glorious resurrection of Christ on the third day. And Jesus was given the highest name. Not only that Jesus has the sweetest name, but he has the highest name. Everyone, everything is under the feet of Jesus. Jesus has the highest name. Everything else must be under Christ. Which means that Jesus must have authority over everything, everyone. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, under the feet of Jesus. England's queen, Elizabeth II, under the feet of Jesus. The president of the United States of America, Barack Hussein Obama, under the feet of Jesus. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry, every Sue, Sally, and Sherry, under the feet of Jesus. Everyone is under the feet of Jesus. Every farmer, every pharmacist, every CEO, every sanitation worker, every preacher, every politician, every person is under the feet of Jesus. Every person who's once lived, every person who now lives, every person who will be born one day, under the feet of Jesus. Everyone is under the name of Christ. Not only everyone, but everything, every circumstance, every crisis, every church, every community under the feet of Jesus. Every country, every nation, every people group under the feet of Jesus. Every cancer, every disease, every disappointment under the feet of Jesus. Everything you have experienced, everything you are experiencing, everything you will experience under the feet of Jesus. We make much of Jesus. We lift him high. Why? Because his name is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. I want to tell you today, there's coming a day there is coming a day when the lordship of Jesus Christ will not be debated and it will not, will not be denied because there's coming a day when sovereign gravity is going to take over. There's coming a day when sanctified linguistics will take over because Jesus says that one day when he returns, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. This is not universalism. Paul is not saying that all dogs go to heaven. He is not saying all roads lead to heaven because universalism and the Great Commission are juxtaposed positions. You cannot hold both of them because Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all people. He wouldn't tell us that if universalism was true. So Paul is not advocating universalism. He's just saying that one day every knee shall bow. You'll either bow now by faith or you'll bow then by force. You'll either bow now um, 
because of salvation or you'll bow then because of condemnation. Either way, every knee shall bow, even to the arrogant, even to the stiff-necked, even the person who said, I don't believe in God. That's okay. God's not up for a popular opinion poll. He's God, all God, 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 all by himself. There is nobody else. And so God is God. Jesus is Lord. The spirit is power. And one day Jesus will descend and every knee will buckle. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Even the one who says, I want to be tight-lipped about it. I don't believe that Jesus is Lord. And in that moment, that that lip will be loosed and declare Jesus is Lord. Have you ever asked yourself, what is this world coming to? I'll tell you what the world is coming to. It's coming to the day when the Lordship of Jesus Christ will not be denied because Jesus is the highest name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what does it mean to be a member of First Baptist Church Pelham? What's the meaning of this? You ask an unchurched person what a church person ought to value. Near the top of the list, they have to say, those Christians love Jesus. Now that non-churched unbeliever, they, they might not believe in Jesus, like Jesus, regard Jesus, respect Jesus, but they should say of you and me, those Christians, they make a lot about Jesus. They're Jesus people. Oh, my friend, what's the one thing that unites us more than anything else? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So on this day, on this day, I ask you, have you ever declared the lordship of Jesus Christ on your life? I'm not asking, have you walked an aisle? Have you gone through water? Have you gotten wet? I'm saying, is Jesus the Lord? Is everything, every problem, every person in your life under the feet of Jesus? Because if not, today can be the day of your salvation. Today you can come and bow on bended knee and you can declare Jesus Lord. You can do it out of compassion. Because a day's coming when every person will do it out of compulsion. Right now you can do it by faith. A day's coming when you have to do it by force. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm just saying, hey, this is what the word says. This is what Jesus talks about through the person of the Apostle Paul as he wrote the letter to the Philippian church. And so on this day, we have the opportunity to come on bended knee and with with loose lips and we can say, Jesus is Lord. We go from death into life. Today, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, this can be the day of your salvation. Maybe you're here and you are a believer, but there's a person that's heavy on your heart. A spouse, child, a grandchild, a neighbor, a co-worker. That person's not a believer, and you know that that person were to die, that person would bow, not by faith, but by force. And they would go, not into salvation, but condemnation. And today, you want to come and pray for them. I want you to know the altar's open. Maybe today, you need to come and join this church. Listen, you're a believer. You've been visiting here you love Jesus. This place loves Jesus. It's a great match. So you come and be part of this faith family. Fundamentally, what it means to be a member of this church 
is that we are committed to Christ. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. You speak, we will obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.